The following message is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us at 11 a.m. on Sundays. You can visit us online at orchardbible.org. Verses 12 through 20 in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians. This is God's word. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Father, we come before you this morning with, around your word, and we're so thankful for your word. We're thankful that always and every time and every moment, your word is applicable to our lives. It's relevant for what we need for all of our life pursuing Christ. And so this morning, Lord, I pray that your word would have its way in us, let your spirit guide each person that's going to listen to this word preached. Connect it to places in their heart that they need to change and to grow. And Lord, give us courage as we face into things that are difficult, um, both just in our, in our current time, but also, Lord, as we face into your word and it, it shines back a light into our heart that, that we need. We need to transform us and shape us. And to this end, we pray this morning, in Christ's name, amen. Well, we've definitely come to another become who you are moment here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And really, the last three passages are all part of uh, this one big admonition to the Corinthians to become who they are, God's redeemed children. But it's clear that in some senses, they weren't really living that way. Incest was addressed in chapter 5. Getting rid of unrepentant sin from within the family of God, the church was addressed, also in chapter 5. Going to court before unbelievers was addressed, earlier in chapter 6. And in our text for today, Paul addresses sexual immorality. And Paul starts off by addressing some sayings that it's likely the Corinthians were using to justify their sexually immoral behavior. Now, as we've heard many times in this series so far, Corinth was really the New York, Los Angeles, and Las Vegas all wrapped up into one place. It was the center for carnal and fleshly impulsive living. And Paul, really in writing now, is seeking to help galvanize the Corinthians against this temptation that they would face in such a carnal uh, environment. Sex with prostitutes was widely accepted and practiced throughout Corinth. And Paul addresses sexual immorality by starting with the bigger questions of 
Who are the Corinthians as new believers? And what has God done for them? Now, what the answer to those two questions are naturally uh, tells us how we ought to live with our sexuality. The Corinthians are to flee sexual immorality and to honor God with their bodies. As Paul starts by addressing Corinthian reasoning, uh, this reasoning would have been easily used to justify sexual immorality. Verse 12 starts, All things are lawful for me. An air of liberty permeates this saying, a, a sort of, I can do whatever I want. In chapter 5, we looked at how Paul addressed that sort of mentality in Romans 6, um, where where he said, shall I go on, or shall we go on sinning that grace may abound? May it never be, is Paul's reply. Now, Paul reasons with the Corinthians here to show both that he understands the thought process, but he wants to clarify it a little bit. His tone is measured and crisp. The, uh, the rest of verse 12 says this, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are beneficial. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved to anything. Now, Paul doesn't disagree with this saying directly, but instead shows that it's the wrong way to look at liberty. Using liberty as an orientation uh, for our actions is really the wrong way to look at liberty. Using uh, the New Testament model, our motivation is to be from love that flows from a pure heart that seeks to honor Christ. Now certainly we, we do have liberty in Christ. But it isn't a liberty to do whatever it is that we want. It's a liberty from sin, not to sin. It's a liberty that's guided by love for God and a love for neighbor. Now, one of the alternatives to action that's guided by love for God and a love for neighbor is this sort of libertine spirit that's guided by self-satisfaction. Paul says that this ends up in slavery. Slavery that certainly isn't beneficial. Verse 13 continues, Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. Now this saying equated one bodily function with another. Our stomach was made to process food and so we eat. Our bodies were made for sex and so we participate in sexual acts. If I have an itch, I scratch it. This sort of cavalier approach, egged on by a misunderstood liberty, was pervasive in Corinth. The phrase continues, Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. Now this is likely Paul's addition to this saying. And by it means the purpose of the body isn't food, and the purpose of the body isn't sex. Yes, both are part of our existence now, but they aren't the ultimate reason that we were made for. And they aren't the defining characteristics or qualities of what makes us image bearers. Our bodies aren't chiefly made for food or sex. They were made for the Lord. Now, we see in this reason, reasoning a common Greek philosophy called dualism. For those interested in philosophy, uh, Plato made this famous in his theory on the forms. And for those less interested in philosophy or Plato, Dualism is the idea that there is a chasm between the physical and the spiritual world, and they're disconnected. The body is not redeemable, and there's no use for it. Only our spirits will be redeemed, and 
Uh, so we can do whatever it is that we want with our bodies now. Now, Paul doesn't mince words when he corrects this faulty reasoning, culminating in the second part of verse 13 and verse 14. The body is not meant for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Now, Paul's response to this idea of a disconnected body and soul is to point to the resurrection of Jesus, to show the value of our bodies. Romans 8.29 calls Jesus the firstborn among many brothers. This is what Paul means. Jesus was raised and so will all those who trust in him as Lord and Savior. Our bodies will be remade and how we use them now is not unimportant. The resurrection points to this. How we live in our bodies now is of utmost importance. We must not disconnect our body and our soul and how we live. The body's redeemable and it's not bad. Though we do suffer now under the weight of sin, one day we'll have perfect bodies and we'll be raised with Christ after his second coming. Now I really love Paul's tactic at the start of our passage. His, he's really doing what he instructs the Corinthians to do later in 2 Corinthians where he teaches and writes this, take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. <laughs> Paul's pointing out error in the Corinthians thinking, things that they believe that aren't right. Now going through these sayings is Paul's way of teaching the Corinthians to think about what they're thinking. What, it is, what is it that's actually guiding your life? And Dallas Willard, in his book, Divine Conspiracy, wrote that it's been said that genius is the ability to scrutinize that which is obvious. We need to look at the everyday, sort of even ho-hum way that we live. Because when we do that, it helps us determine what it is that we really believe that guides our behavior. We have to change what we believe before our behavior will change. So, what are the ways that we too, like the Corinthians, believe things that might be false as it relates to our sexuality, to our identity as image bearers? Really, behind any sexual sin, or, or actually any sin for that matter, is a lie that we believe that led us there. It's really not unlike what Adam and Eve went through in the garden with the serpent. Temptations are all centered around causing us to doubt God's character in God's design, that he knows what, what's actually best for us. Now, for instance, when a Christian sins sexually, the lie behind the wrong behavior is something like this. I need to satisfy this lustful desire because this pleasure, is, it's, it's what makes me feel really alive. That's what will make me feel truly satisfied and, and fulfilled. Or maybe something like this. I need sex with that person who isn't my spouse so that I can feel wanted or loved or powerful or sexy, so on and so forth. Now, because those feelings are what I was made for. So, what is the lie behind your temptations? What are the weak points in your armor? Where will the attack come from? See, pleasure power, wrong ways to seek this feeling of love and intimacy are all things we need to look out for. Now today, 
the common message about sexuality is definitely a humanistic one, that man is at the center. It's a message that says, you create your own reality. Now, sexual freedom and autonomy are probably the highest ideals in pop culture today. And they have been for some time, really. You do you. Get what's yours. Now, no one else can tell you what is right. You decide that. Journalist and culture commentator Warren Smith says this of freedom uh, that's like, like our culture describes. It's freedom that allows you to jump out of a plane, but without a parachute. Then at some point you realize that gravity is happening. And gravity is like reality. You can jump out without a parachute, but that doesn't end well for the jumper. You can live life like you have sexual and personal autonomy, but that's not factoring in the God who knows you and made you to live with him. Now, this is certainly challenging. For some, what God is calling you out of is clear this morning. Stop looking at pornography. Stop lusting sexually as you think about other people. Now, any lustful habit is wrong, whether it's sex outside of marriage, pornography use, voyeurism, which is really just another way of using God's image bearers for your own gratification. They all say that you are in charge of what's right. And they neglect honoring God as the creator and Lord. And friends, these things end in slavery. Living life outside of God's design for you doesn't result in more joy. It results in more slavery. A slavery that will destroy you. So now, Paul's strategy for the Corinthians doesn't stop at pointing out wrong thinking. Paul goes on to give a robust theology of body and spirit. This is doctrine, folks. For those, of, uh, for those who say that doctrine doesn't really matter, doctrine is the foundation for practical living. And Paul launches into this rich view of anthropology, who we are as image bearers, and what it means for our sexuality. See, Paul addresses anthropology to teach the Corinthians about sexuality. He teaches them what they are designed for as God's redeemed people. Now this is to supersede this fleshly drive for sexual gratification. Let's look at 13b and 14 again. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Now the body is meant for the Lord. He designed us. He knows what we need to operate well. Now, we were not meant for sexual immorality. Paul gives the resurrection as proof of this. Christ was raised, and we will be too. This serves as a foundation for how we should see and handle the bodies that God has given us. Now, Paul begins verse 15 using the phrase, Do you not know? Paul is less polemical maybe than chapter 5 where he calls the Corinthians arrogant for boasting in a man's incestuous relationship. But he begs these questions in a way that would likely help them draw the obvious conclusion. The obvious answer for Paul about the use of our bodies is this. Our bodies are members of Christ. Verses 15 through 17. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? 
Shall I then take members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Members is a Greek way of saying body parts. Those in Christ make up Christ's body. He is the head and all of his followers make up the body. Now, those in Christ are all given gifts and uses for the good of the whole body. Really, also for the proclamation of the good news about Christ to the whole world. Now, this is significant. And Paul rejected the dualism and the just feed your bodily desires rationale. He now adds to it this vision that our bodies are purposed for something new. Something far greater and higher than sex. The purpose of them is to be vessels used by God for His work in the world. Now, believers are now part of Christ. We're, we're part of His work. We're His body. And He uses us to carry out this ongoing work that He's doing throughout the whole world. Now, we're united with Christ in a oneness that's illustrated in the institution of marriage. Christ is the bridegroom. The church is the bride. We are one with the Lord. Now we have his very spirit in us. And this creates a oneness in mission and purpose. Paul uses this illustration to point out how unfitting it is to then join a member of Christ with a prostitute. We're already joined to Christ. So we cannot be joined illicitly outside of God's design for us. The illustration, it's not to show that prostitutes are irredeemable, but it's to show that this kind of sexual union is not how God intends for us to flourish. This vision is tremendously important. Paul goes on to quote Genesis 2.24 to show the one way in which we're to be sexually united. The two will become one flesh speaks of God's design of marriage of a man and a woman. This one flesh union created by sexual intercourse is not just a bodily metaphor. It has spiritual significance. Now, outside of this design, sex joins a believer with a person in a way that disrupts the union between Christ and his disciple. This is not how disciples are called to live. Paul is using these illustrations to make clear that sex outside of marriage is wrong and it produces slavery, not joy, and not flourishing. Casual sex isn't a thing. Sex creates a one flesh union that's not eternal, but it's so significant and important, precious and good, that it's to be monogamous, not philandering. This is a protection for us. Brothers and sisters, God's not holding out on us. He means this for our good. Paul continues his deep dive into biblical anthropology in verse 19. Verse 19 says this, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Now this is just incredible. Our purpose isn't to... To use our bodies however we please, our purpose is to be home to the Holy Spirit of God. This gives dignity and purpose to a person that nothing else could. 
The word used here for temple is naos, which is from the term to describe the holy of holies, the center of the temple mount, where the presence of God dwelled with his people. Believers are now indwelt with the living and holy spirit of the almighty God who created the universe. I just love Paul's prayer in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. Paul prays, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to his power at work within us, the immense power and fortitude and strength and wisdom and creativity that was present at the creation of the universe is at work within us. We are temples. What a high and holy calling. This is the anthropological vision that Paul's casting for the Corinthians. This is who you are, Paul is saying. Your bodies will be raised and made new. You'll have them forever. You're now Christ's body, used for his purposes, and you're a place, you're the place where his spirit dwells. Apostle also uses this, this great vision to demonstrate the significance of sexual sin. Now, this robust theology of human purpose and meaning shows the importance of how a Christian handles their sexual desires. In doing so, we're honoring his design for us. He is our maker, and he knows how we operate best. Verse 18. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Now, certainly there are sins that are also against the body, like gluttony, uh, drunkenness, abuse, neglect, but none of them produce a one-flesh union. Now, because of this, the significance of sexual sin is unlike any other sin that's against the body. The ramification of sexual sin was likely lost on the Corinthians, who had wrongly disconnected the body and the soul. So, one practical way that sexual sin against our bodies is, is uh, understanding how connected our sexual behavior is with how we think. I literally mean the physical pathways in our brain and the way that our neurons fire and communicate together. There are a whole host of neurotransmitters. There are actually chemicals inside our body that when stirred, communicate through our brain. And they're stirred in abundance with sexual activity. Now from the beginning of sexual arousal to its climax, the way that we're stimulated creates pathways inside of our brain. It's like, think of it as a road in our brain. And when we learn to stimulate and build those pathways in ways that our brains were never meant to work, it alters the way it works. And it's not undone without tremendous work. Generally speaking, it takes time and patience and much grace. For instance, I once counseled a man who had spent years of his life prior to marriage looking at pornography. This wasn't a once-in-a-while thing. It was a habitual and regular use of internet pornography. Now, when it came time to have marital sex on his wedding night, the wiring in both his brain and his heart was so distorted that he wasn't able to do it. Now this, as you can imagine, was devastating. 
tremendously hard on their marriage. It took years to heal and to mend. But by God's good grace and the help of many skilled therapists, this couple learned to thrive by approaching marital sexual intimacy in a way that God intends. Now, I'm, I'm not trying to use this as a means to scare anyone, but this is real. And it happens when we train our brains in ways that we weren't made to work. This is why sexual sin is so significant. Now, before we move on further, I want to talk tactically for a minute for those whose role is this discipleship of children and youth. Now, you might be a parent. That's you, discipling your children. Might be a teacher, Sunday school teacher, youth leaders. I'm talking to you guys right now. Notice Paul's approach again. He starts out with pointing out wrong thinking, lies believed. And he doesn't just, he doesn't just tell them, do this and don't do this. To teach them, uh, he, he then goes and he teaches them the truth about what the human body was made for. Recently, I was watching a lecture given down in Manitou Springs at Summit Ministries by John Stone Street. Stone Street is the host of Chuck Colson's old radio show called Breakpoint. And he's the president of the Chuck Colson Center. He travels the world addressing issues of worldview and politics. In a Q&A session, he was asked about how to have a conversation with a young person about sexuality in our current cultural climate. He responded by saying this, the first and foremost conversation that we should have with young people isn't what you should do and not do with your sexuality, but what you are for. To paraphrase the rest of what Stone Street said, if we just teach do's and don'ts, we'll lose every time because the culture is armed with an anthropology that sells and it sells really well. Now, Paul models this same order of operations for us. He points out the lies believed by the Corinthians, and then he gets to the rich, deep, breathtaking view of who we are as followers of Jesus. We're God's children, and we're going to be resurrected, and we'll have perfect bodies with Christ one day. We're members of Christ. We're his body, and we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. We must teach our children this. The Imago Dei, the image of God in humans, is what should resound loudly when we speak of why we value marriage the way we do and why we cherish sexual purity so much. Certainly this isn't just for our youth or children. All adults need this as well. Now Paul goes from pointing out lies that the Corinthians believe to giving a great doctrine of redeemed humanity. And now we see him give two strong imperatives for the Corinthians' reformation. These imperatives are really two sides of the same coin. And they come right after this bigger, bolder picture of who they are as image bearers. Now if the Corinthians, and if we don't get the bigger picture, reforming isn't hardly possible. Verse 18, Paul says, Flee sexual immorality. Well, Paul tells the Corinthians to flee from sexual immorality. Now, this is not a hard one to apply to our lives. It's pretty straightforward. 
we need to understand why we flee. And we've already gone through that. We've gone through the significant ways that sexual sin is a sin against our bodies. Now, how do we flee? Now, one pastor says that all young people should wear track shoes. When you feel tempted, run. You'll always be ready if you have track shoes on. Well, Paul's likely thinking of Joseph in Genesis chapter 39 when Potiphar's wife trapped him and tried to tempt him to sleep with her. Joseph fled, it says. When he faced temptation, he hightailed it out of the situation he was in. I think, flee, I think of fleeing as our strategic defense against sexual sin. I've met hundreds of men and heard many stories of women who've struggled with sexual sin, all to varying degrees. And I'd never heard a story from a person where they said this, I was surprised by the temptation that I faced today. No. Most people know exactly when and where they face temptation sexually. And this is for both men and women. It's foolish to not do something about it ahead of time. If you have no strategy for fleeing the temptation in those moments, you will continue to fall. So the question is, do you have a strategy? Now, if you don't have a strategy, call a brother or sister in Christ and make one. Come up with a strategy. The armies of the Allied forces didn't arrive on the beaches at France and then come up with their strategy all of a sudden, did they? No, they, they thought through ahead of time what they would do when the battle came to them. And when they showed up, they needed to be ready to fight. Now, if you don't have a strategy, is it because your heart is naive to the schemes of Satan and the wiles of your flesh? Or if you don't have a strategy, is it because you don't really want to stop sinning sexually? Now, the other side of this coin comes to us in the closing words of our passage for today. Glorify God in your body. If our defense against sexual temptation is the strategic plan to flee, our offense is training ourselves in godliness to glorify God with our bodies. This looks like purity. This looks like dwelling on the richness of what we have access to in Christ. Now we have his Holy Spirit in us to guide us and direct us in moments of temptation. And one of the ways that I think it's most effective to derail temptation in your life and glorify God in your body is to set your mind on something better than the illicit pleasures that lure you away. Start by taking the thought captive and doing this lie versus truth analysis that Paul has modeled for us. And then set your mind on Christ and go do something else. One common question that young people will often ask when they're dating, and it's actually a really good diagnostic heart question, is this. How far is too far? Meaning, how far can I go physically with my boyfriend or girlfriend before it's too far? The one asking usually doesn't know it's diagnosing a heart issue. Honoring God with our bodies doesn't mean we push as close as we can to the line. It means that we want to be pure. <laughs> Honoring God with our bodies means we ask the question this way, how pure is too pure? <laughs> how can I make every interaction, whether it's via text, 
phone, video, or in person. So pure and holy and honoring to God and my significant other. We can ask these same types of questions in marriage or in singleness. How can I honor God in the passions that I feel in my body today? Now, it might mean we do things that don't rev up our sexual engines when there's no healthy God-honoring outlet for sexual activity. Now, maybe you're married and your spouse is out of town for a while. Or maybe your spouse is going through a health problem that limits sexual intimacy. Or maybe you're single and while God has made you sexual, you're in a season of life where sexual intimacy really has no place. That's okay. Our sexuality isn't the only thing about us. We have a high calling to flee temptation and glorify God in our bodies because we bear His image. And His image in us is much more than our sexuality. Some of you need to hear that again. His image in us is much more than our sexuality. And this is Paul's call here to the Corinthians when he says, glorify God in your body. Be holy in all the things that you think or do, whether you're single or dating or married. We've been redeemed and we bear his image. So glorify God in your body. Now our redemption in Christ is what makes this personal reformation possible. We have liberty now to not sin and to live obediently to Christ. And Paul points the Corinthians to their advocate. He's done so numerous times in this letter so far. In chapter 5, when Paul strongly rebukes this church for allowing and boasting in sin inside the church family, he does so while reminding them that they're the new lump. They've been made new. They're Christ now. In the first part of our chapter, Paul says that he's speaking of the Corinthians' lawsuits among the church family to shame them. <laughs> this is such strong and personal language. And Paul takes them to the cross <laughs> to remind them that this isn't who they are. That despite their sin, they have one who's rescued them from it. They have one who's given them a new nature now. In our text for today, Paul again has strong words for the Corinthians about sexually immoral behavior. And again, Paul takes them to Christ. Verse 19 and 20. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. You are not your own. Now that message can be tough for us to hear. This is tough to hear for the one who's bristling against God. It angers the rebellious heart to hear that you're not your own. You aren't the Lord. If this is you this morning, there's only one way to fix it. Submit yourself to Christ. Bow to his lordship. Confess your sin and confess your need for a savior. Living as your own authority, as your own master, will not equal joy and thriving. It will only deepen your slavery. You are not your own. The one who hears this this morning and feels broken and is hurt, looking back at sexual sin or current sexual sin or current struggle with sexual sin, 
look no further for redemption and healing than Jesus. If you turn from your sin and in faith follow Jesus, know that you have been bought with a price. That price was the precious blood of God's own Son. He paid your debt, and now you are not your own. What a joyous thing that we can rejoice in. What a tremendous truth that you've been set free from bondage. And now you live within the joyful embrace of your Savior. The Holy Spirit indwells you. And when Satan comes to remind you of your sin, you swing your sword and recite this, that I am not my own. I am Christ's now because I was bought with the precious blood of the Lamb. The Corinthians needed to know of their advocate in the midst of this struggle with sin. And we too this morning, we need to know that we have an advocate and that we've been bought with the precious blood of Christ. If you're listening this morning and you recognize your need to be freed from bondage to sin, and you have yet to place your faith in Christ, you're invited by Christ himself to receive salvation in him. Turn from your sin and trust in Christ. Flee from immorality and honor God in your body. If this is you this morning, please reach out to one of our pastors or another Christian who can help you understand this life-changing truth. Let's close in prayer. Father, this is a good word that we need. We're thankful for the reminder that though when we struggle, uh, it's hard and, and sometimes we don't know the way to defeat temptation. Your word guides us. And we know that Christ has paid our debt. He's paid the penalty for our sin and you've set us free from bondage to it. Lord, I pray that today and moving forward, your spirit would lead us in this. Give people courage to own up to their sin and to lay them at the foot of the cross and walk freely with Jesus. We're so thankful that we can even pursue this. We're thankful for your patience with us as we grow in godliness and Christ-likeness. We pray all these things. Amen.